Date with a Debut is a Words and Nerds and Breathe Art podcast co-production, recorded on a Wagbacool country. And I pay my respects to all elders past and present, and extend that to any First Nations people tuning in. Always was, always will be, Aboriginal land. On with the show. Revisiting some of those themes that I was trying to explore, I recognised how aligned with Elle's journey this setting is. Like, Elle is experiencing that betweenness, and Newcastle is that, like, representative of that betweenness. Hello, I am Nick Lucilia, former host of Tell Me What to Read, author of When Men Cry, and I'm continuing this mini-series with Words and Nerds where we shine a light on debut novelists and their journey to publication. If you're looking for a new book to devour and a new author to discover, this is the place to be. If you're looking for tips on writing inspiration, this is the place to be. This is Date with a Debut, because nothing hits you like a first impression. And for our next episode in this series, I'm joined by Amy Lovett. She's the founder of The Secret Books of The Secret Book Stuff. She is a lecturer and she now lives on Gadigal Country. Her debut, Mistakes and Other Lovers, is published by Pam Millen. I'm particularly excited because this is the second in a small series of little podcasts that I'm also doing with authors that originally are from the area that I'm now living, Newcastle. Amy, welcome. Thank you for having me, Nick. It's great to be here. It's lovely to have you and let's talk about you and this amazing book that you put together. Let's start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to start this writing journey. About myself. Okay, I can do this. Um, So my name is Amy Lovett and I started writing as soon as my mum put a pencil, a crayon, I guess it would have been back in the day, (laughs) in my hand and she likes to remind me of that all the time as I move through this debut author journey. Um, just remember that I'm the one who taught you how to write. Just remember that I'm the one who put the pen in your hand. <laughs> so shout out to mum. And I've just been an avid reader my entire life. Uh, when I was in high school, I was constantly writing stories. When I went to uni and accidentally studied law for a few years, I actually did every single creative writing subject I could possibly do, ended up deferring my law degree to do an honours in creative writing because I realised that that was a whole year of reading and writing, which just (laughs) was mind-blowing to me. Um, So, And then I ended up doing a PhD in creative writing at the University of Newcastle. I ended up lecturing in creative writing there as well um, and to this day and I, along the way, have just absorbed myself in the literary world as much as I possibly could, volunteered at writers' festivals and and hosted panels and and I run Secret Book Stuff, as you mentioned, which is a a bookish little business that ended up being a small physical bookshop in Newcastle for a little while pre-COVID. And, um, yeah, I just I feel incredibly privileged that I'm sitting here today and my whole life revolves around books and words. Like, pinch me. I know, isn't isn't it great? And also that the the people that you run into, the community of like-minded individuals who are as obsessed and as passionate as about books as you is probably one of the most wonderful things to have discovered uh, in the world of of publishing. Just seeing so many like-minded people come together to celebrate books, and also your. Oh my book. gosh! Yeah, which is so surreal because I feel like I've spent the majority of my life so far championing other people's books not that I'm going to stop doing that <laughs> but now that the attention has turned around on me 
it's really surreal experience. I have to try not to interview you today, Nick, because that is my natural instinct is to interview the person I'm talking to as opposed to answering the questions myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll take this as a good indication of, of my, of my uh, interviewing critiquing style and I'll see if I can measure up. Let's begin with the probably the most cliched question possible. Give me your one minute pitch for mistakes and other lovers. So you're catching me at a good time. I hope this doesn't count as the one minute, by the way. <laughs> no, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> this is my preamble. You're catching me at a great time because for 11 years since I started writing this book, I feel like I've been quite terrible at the, the whole pitching thing. And I've said to myself, I really need to practice this. And on the weekend, I did a live radio where I was reviewing someone else's book for ABC Radio, which is a regular thing that I do. And mm -hmm. right at the end, the interviewer caught me by surprise and said, oh, so actually you have a book coming out. And what is that about? And I didn't know he was going to do that. So I had to think quickly and I feel like I gave the best pitch when I was under pressure. So this is the pitch. Let's do it. <laughs> Mistakes and Other Lovers is a grungy millennial coming of age story set in Newcastle that explores the messy space between adolescence and adulthood. And we follow our main character, Elle, who is 23 and she has just broken off a long-term relationship that actually ended up being an engagement with her high school boyfriend. She's having an affair with the youth pastor of the local evangelical church. Um, she's ghosting her friends. She's wondering what the F she's doing with her life. And we follow her journey to figuring it out and making mistakes along the way. I love how you summarise this because, like, because I always like to try and talk about the themes and the characters. And I was like, Oh my God, there is so much going on here. I do not know where to start um, with my first question <laughs> because I, I but I, I'm going to first of all, like reference the fact, the fact that the way Emily Maguire and Hannah Kent have described this book, which first of all, shout out to you being able to get them to talk oh praise on, to heap praise on you's book. But I feel like their words actually summarize, they summarize it better than I ever could. This is, feels like a juicy chat with your funniest raunchiest messiest friend and again that whole button or theme of seeking self and adulthood and I love the the way that I kind of just I love there was one particular phrase that stuck out to me when I was reading it that nails this as well which is this when Elle describes how she meets kick I don't pronounce this correct kick and lux correct uh in a place where 20 somethings live like they're adults until they realize that no one is which I mm. was like, yes, there it is. How <laughs> hard was it to craft this world of romance, conflicting emotions, confusing love interests, lots of casual sex, uh, mm. and finding the self? How did you do this? Well, first of all, I lived it. <laughs> and that's where it all started. Um, no, I mean, you say that it, how hard was it? And I don't want to be like a wanker, but it wasn't hard to create that world because when I first started writing this book, I was living that world. And so mm. I was kind of really immersed in it at the time, like 11 years ago. So I'm in my early 20s when I started writing this book and it just started flowing out of me because I felt like there was a part of me that wanted to capture how I was feeling at the time and what I was going through and how on the precipice of adulthood I felt 
without ever knowing if I was going to make it or if anyone makes it, whatever that means. Um, so it wasn't it wasn't difficult to to craft the world. What was difficult was um, turning it into a narrative that would be you know commercially viable because I think in <laughs> you know so so mistakes and other lovers started life as the creative portion of my PhD thesis and so it was about half the length that it is now originally and it was pretty experimental you know it was very episodic and all of the things that a commercial novel are not really supposed to be but you can get away with in a PhD Mm. um so it was kind of after that time that I was working on it and trying to turn it into something real that that was the challenging part for me but but actually writing this world in the first place was just so enjoyable, so fun and so messy. And, mm. you know, the older I get, the more I can take that trip down memory lane. Sometimes I find myself in a real, like a, a kind of weirdly dark place when I'm working on this book. It's almost like I transport myself back to that time so intensely that I have to shake myself back into the real world when I've finished for the day. So, yeah, mm. that's been a really interesting experience. It's great. It's I, I think... I, and I now now I have even more questions because often like I followed a similar path with my first book where I kind of was pulling from a time in my life and then people immediately ask the questions well who is Kick who is JD who is Lux who is Mace where uh, did these characters come from and then you're like well no this is like I had to create all of this and had to craft all of these characters it, mm-hmm. A lot of times I didn't want to, I hate sometimes doing literary comparisons, but it felt like sometimes like Benjamin in The, the Graduate a little bit. Ah, Except, okay. Like Elle was stuck in this place of self-discovery, worrying about the future, not knowing what she wants and acting sometimes on impulse, which was just, and the and kind of not being able to comprehend the repercussions of it. And there was, and she, I just loved her as this lens into this world as a as a character she's the lens but then of course you've got all these other characters where on earth did as you were kind of turning this book into a narrative and creating the fictional element of this life that you had lived and experienced how on earth did all of these characters come into your life oh that's a good question because they've sort of popped up along the way you know I have the foundational characters who were there from the very beginning Elle and Mace for example um and Kick and Lux and so those were sort of the four main characters and then and then what was built around that as time went on and I I kept writing the book is is really interesting because um yeah it's you know, you're always aware as well of the balance between introducing too many characters but not introducing mm. enough characters and then making the characters that you have do too many things and be too many people to your protagonist. So, you know, Gabby, for example, Elle's best friend from high school who she's kind of ghosting and then and then reaches out to towards the end, she, I feel like, is an amalgamation of every amazing friend I've ever had who stuck by me in dark times and 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 put up with my shit <laughs> <laughs> and just you know she so you know whereas people like Mace were really clear to me from the very beginning um not that it was a person in real life who I was trying to model him off but he ju- I just knew exactly who he was you know and what he was about but someone like Gabby she 
yeah, she's like really kind of evolved as I, I've even spoke to friends of mine. I remember um, in the, one of the big edits that I did, I called one of my best friends from high school and I said, hey, you remember that time in my life when this was going on for me and you knew that it was a bad thing for me and you were trying to tell me that it was bad and, but I wasn't listening but you still stuck by me. Like, how was that for you? Like, tell me about that. <laughs> you know, what was it that, what would have what would have pushed you over the line of like ditching me as a friend kind of thing? And it was really, really cool to have those conversations because we were able to sort of talk about our own lives, but then relate them to this hypothetical situation that didn't happen. And then I could kind of use that and turn that into um, like character motivations. And mm. so, yeah, like those kind of, those kind of uh, research conversations I've had with friends have been amazing and have and have definitely shaped some of those characters along the way. Mm, absolutely, and the best sort of the most the best I think for authors is for listeners is that you you can dive into a character, but there's always a grain of truth to them. There's always a grain of truth into it about that stuff, and that's what gives a lot of these worlds and fictional places grounding. I mm. love that also that much of this story takes place in Nui. It's mm. I, I love how you ground this place. And also just how it fits with Elle herself. You know, I feel like this particular, the time when we are in now with Newcastle kind of isn't really, it hasn't really been touched a lot on in literature. You know, it's no longer got an identity based around steelworks and the coal ports and industrial past. There is old dilapidated buildings next to brand spanking new ones. There is construction here, there and everywhere, but also suburbs that look, feel like they're from the 1970s there's churches, <laughs> there's, um, I love your description mm-hmm. on the, like the, the, you nailed it, you had me hooked with your description of Nui on the first page. One of those giant thousand piece puzzles families do at Christmas time, but it's in the slow disassembling state after the Christmas season. Talk mm-hmm. me through, not just, you've got these great characters, you've got this concept, talk me through the space, but also just why it fits so well with the themes of Elle's story. Yeah, it's, I mean, it was a no-brainer for the setting because I grew up in Newcastle and I studied there and I love Newcastle to the ends of the earth. I think it is the coolest place but also the uncoolest place and it's just so fascinating (laughs) and I love, (laughs) I love the, I love the betweenness of Newcastle. You know, I love that it's not quite city, not quite town. Like it's the seventh largest city in Australia but it has such a, a small town feel where everyone knows everyone and there are cliques and there are just generations of Novocastrians and there's that real pride in the founding of our town as like a city, whatever you want to call it, as a blue-collar sort of place and it has a really rich history. It's so close to Sydney. Like it just – and now, you know, as you mentioned, the the amazing movement of Newcastle into this real arts hub that I've witnessed in the last decade or so has been – incredible and so I think that I always knew that I wanted to capture Newcastle as a setting and as like a character in itself but Mm. it wasn't until putting the final touches on the book and and like revisiting some of those themes that I was trying to explore that I recognized how aligned with Elle's journey this setting is like Elle is experiencing that betweenness and Mm. Newcastle is like representative of that between us which i think is really unintentionally awesome
wonderful, wonderful book. And I love it. And I honestly could keep poking you you about the story. But I also want to ask (laughs) you about your journey to publication. Because, I mean, I get, I like this because no one else currently in this series that I've spoken to, uh, you know, you've st- you've done literature, you've, you've lectured at University of Newcastle, as already mentioned. What mm. was that journey like around then going for publication, going to publication? Mm, yeah, it's been an interesting one because um, when you look back at my timeline and, and my history, I suppose a lot of people would be confused about why it took so long, like why the 11 years from from go to woe kind of thing. But that's pretty normal, as we know, on the inside of the publishing yeah. journey. Yeah, that sounds um, about right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I really like, I, I like to remind people of how long it took as well, because I think from the outside, you know, given that I run Secret Book Stuff and I, you know, have worked for the Newcastle Writers Festival and the Mountain Writers Festival and I have... I have, you know, like a growing profile, I suppose, in in the arts and in literature, um, that it might seem like I just sort of wrote a book and then gave it to someone who I was really good friends with and they decided to publish it because I was already in the know or whatever. But no, like it, it took a long time and it just shows how the journey works. And like I feel like at times in the last 11 years I've been very close but not quite, you know, so... I think the first time I felt really close was in 2017. I was shortlisted for the Kill Your Darlings Unpublished Manuscript Prize mm. and that caught the attention of a couple of agents who were interested and they read it and gave me some feedback and said, go away and, and fix this and do this and then send it back to us. And so I did those things and they didn't end up taking me on. And, um, you know, so that felt really close but then also really far and really crushing when it doesn't, you don't quite make it. Um, and so then... I was just about to give up on this book and thought, you know, there's that age-old adage that you should, whatever your first book is, just put it in a drawer and forget about it, you know, and and write something new. And this book was so close to me and so important to me that I couldn't fathom doing that for such a long time. And then just a couple of years ago, I applied to go to uh, Varuna Writers' House and I was awarded a fellowship to go there in the Blue Mountains and, and I had submitted um, the first 10,000 words of this book or whatever it was. And in between submitting that, getting the fellowship and then actually going to Varuna, I had decided that's enough. I need to give up on this. I'm going to put it away. I'm going to start something new. I had this new fresh idea. So I went to Varuna thinking, okay, cool. I'm going to use this amazing two-week time to write, like start writing this new book and forget about Mistakes and Other Lovers. And um, I had, as part of the the winning fellowship, I got a one-on-one session with Carol Major who's like a book whisperer and she had read the first 10,000 words so I said to her look Carol I've given up I'm not doing this anymore I'm just going to focus on this new thing she said that's great but since I've read it let's talk about it and she asked me these incredibly poignant and incisive little questions that made me think about my book in a whole different way and I ended up starting a whole blank new document printing out the manuscript of Mistakes and Other Lovers, putting it next to me and then just sort of throwing it on the floor, rearranging the whole thing and then rewriting it from scratch. And that was the most transformative experience. And that's what I suppose kickstarted this journey because then I used that version of it um, to apply for another competition, which I was, I came runner up. So that also oh. felt so close. Oh. <laughs> and 
and the and the host of the competition called me and said, "Look, you didn't win, but you that you were so close, and I couldn't just send you the rejection email. I needed to tell you how close you were to winning this opportunity, which was like um, a mentorship with a, a agent and a publisher." And I was like, cool, right, that's great to know. You know, this is lovely, but what do I do with that information? How am I supposed yeah, to feel about this? Like, it's <laughs> devastating. <laughs> um, and so, but as a result of that, they actually put my name on the website as the runner-up when it was announced. Um, and that led to a publisher at Pam Macmillan sliding into my DMs on LinkedIn of all places. My partner always makes fun of me for having a LinkedIn, but now... I'm like LinkedIn's biggest fan because <laughs> he sent me this message and said, oh, congratulations, Amy, I saw your runner-up position and I'd love to read the manuscript. And I thought it was spam. I was like, this doesn't happen. This is not a real thing. And then I Googled him and he was a publisher at Pam Macmillan and that was incredible. So I sent it to him and he read it and then he said, oh, it might take me a month. He called me a few days later and said I inhaled it. I'd love to chat. And then he took it to acquisitions and then two weeks later he'd offered me a two-book deal. So... Yep, that, that's from how that. fast it is from 11 years to that. <laughs> that's exactly right. And that's the weirdest thing is that you feel like nothing's happening, but then something happens and it's just like lightning. And mm. it's so, it can be so overwhelming and so surreal and, you know, terrifying. It's all the emotions wrapped into one, but, you know, it's, it was incredible. And, and here we are. I about love it. To come out in the world. <laughs> Oh, if I can, yeah. I want to poke you a little bit more about this editing side of your story that you kind of went through. Yeah. Because again, books do not happen in isolation. Books are, many people work hard on them and put together and do incredible work. And I want to ask about mm. the editing process, like, if I can. I mm. found it, editing to be unbelievably liberating. Um, Kill Your Darling, the Kill Your Darlings mantra is real and it's amazing mm -hmm. and it's fantastic. Um, how was the experience of crafting this story together, especially when Pam McMillan, you got um, such an, a positive message from a publisher and who inhaled it in a few days? Mm. What was that process mm. of editing and, and crafting it into the final product like? Uh, also transformative. Like the two most transformative times were rewriting the whole thing at Varuna and then doing the structural edit with Pam McMillan, which was incredible. And I was so excited. I know some writers are really weird about the editing process. They find it really scary and they hate it. But I'm the complete opposite. Like the blank page terrifies me to tears. But if I have something to work with, I love editing. I just absolutely adore it. And, you know, I've worked as an editor for other people as well. So I was really excited to see how someone from the outside was going to zoom in and just be able to tell me, exactly what to do and, and the problems in the manuscript that I was aware of but it's really hard when you're so close to it and you know I've been with it for 11 years and I really was at the point where there's nothing else I could do to it personally I needed someone else to come in and help and so that structural edit was incredible I knew the timeline because you know as you know from reading it the timeline jumps back and forth a little bit yes. in Elle's life and mm. that was the biggest problem uh, it was almost like doing a maths puzzle <laughs> maths equation when I was doing the structural edit because I had to really go closely and make sure that the reveal of information was correct and I wasn't referring to things that hadn't yet been revealed on the page just because I as the writer already knew them because I'd been writing that scene for 11 years or something so I, it was really fun I found it really really fun I found it so amazing to have the support of the editor as well 
Um, but I didn't, I, I knew that an editor doesn't go in and like make changes for you or tell you exactly what's wrong. But I didn't quite understand until it was happening to me how skilled they are at asking the right questions or making, you know, little suggestions about something that could be fixed. You know, they don't say, oh, so this thing happening here is ABC, but I think it would be better as XYZ. What do you think? They're like, this thing happening here is ABC, but I think we can do something else with it so that Mm -hmm. these other things become more stronger or like, you know, more clear or whatever it is. They don't give you the solutions, which is awesome because then it's up to you to sort of dig a little deeper and and play with it. And I found that really, really fun. So Mm. I absolutely loved the editing experience. Which is nice to have someone else invested in my work for a change re- instead of it just being like me and my manuscript for so long. <laughs> <laughs> they're your first reader at the end of the day. That's the that's the key thing. Like they're they're your first reader and they're they're the they're your advocate. They they bat they go to battle for you. My my kind of next question would be you you've lectured about writing, you've talked about that space a lot. Now that you've kind of been through that space itself in the creative process. Uh, what would be your advice for first-time writers, people listening to this going, oh, my God, I don't know what to do. I don't know how I'm going to create this story. Where do I go from here? What would be your first piece of advice that Amy would have loved to have heard 11 years ago? <laughs> I know what I probably did hear and possibly didn't listen to and still don't listen to, so I'm going to be a total hypocrite here. And say that the best piece of advice is just to write something, write anything, just start. Oh, I even, I hate myself for saying that because whenever I hear someone say that, I'm like, yeah, it's easy enough to say, then you've got to sit down and do it. And (laughs) I'm just so bad with the blank page and with the discipline, but it's something I have to tell myself everyone every day is like, I won't have anything to edit, which is my favorite part. If I haven't first written it. So I just have to push through and wade through the self-doubt and the excuses and the procrastination and all that stuff. I just have to write. And I think in on a more practical sense, one of the things that I do when I'm feeling uninspired or have a bit of writer's block is I like to write in public. I'm not a sit in a quiet room and write kind of person the best thing that I can do is sit in a a cafe, a busy cafe or a pub or, you know, even a library or something where there's lots of people around and just eavesdrop on some conversations and just observe people walking around you and and make up names for them and make up stories for them. (laughs) I used to do a lot of um, commuting to and from Newcastle and Sydney because I was, you know, working in Sydney but also you know, working in Newcastle and just I've been bridging Newcastle and Sydney for as long as I can remember. And I've spent a lot of time on trains. I get a lot of inspiration on trains. I used to just actually do a little fun creative exercise for myself where I would make up stories about someone on the train carriage that I could see and just make up a whole life for them. And no one would ever read it except me, but it just, it got the pen moving, you know, it got, it got the ideas flowing. So if I need to have a little shake up I'll do something like that I'll sit in the cafe and I'll I'll just watch people for a little while um people are endlessly fascinating there's so much content to be mined from just watching people <laughs> out there living their lives so that's a little practical piece of advice and I guess more generally I think that 
surrounding yourself with people who have similar interests and care about the same things that you do. Like we were talking about at the beginning of this chat, Nick, about how amazing the the book community and the literary community are. It is it, it just can't be overstated. I am so, so grateful for all the people I've met along the way. And, you know, you have to do some kind of annoying things. You have to maybe work for free when you need to pay the rent and things like that just to get the experience and to meet people and but it's worth it. You know, join a writer's group. If if you think you have absolutely no time to do something like join a writer's group, you just have to make time because having those people on your side and supportive of what you're doing and, and your journey because they're also doing something similar is so important. Like I just I can't recommend enough how important it is to to just absorb yourself in the community as much as possible in the book world, in the world of writers and and put yourself out there and start making friends and making connections and you just never know where it's going to lead. I love it. I love mm. it. Great, great, great advice. And on that, what is next on the in the journey of Amy Lovett? I know I heard I heard a two book deal. There's another one there. Yes. I'm excited. Tell me more. There is another one. I am writing book two at the moment. It's not a sequel. It's a it's a standalone contemporary fiction novel as well. And I can't really say much about it at the moment because I'm A, not allowed, and B, it's not fully formed enough for me to even feel confident. I've got my pitch, but I won't give it to you. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, that, that's what I'm working through at the moment. So I'm I'm literally trying to follow my own advice every day alongside you know, a full-time job and and freelance work and, and the publication of my first book and all the things, you know, it's chaotic, but I wouldn't have it any other way. Before we move on to the final section of the, po- of the podcast, I want to finally ask, we read books all the time. We often talk about, uh, you know, the Australian experience and things like that. How important is is it for us to have stories set outside of the capital, set in regional Australia? How important is it? Oh my gosh, so important because so many people live outside of capital cities in Australia and live suburban lives and small town lives and and different kind of ex- have different experiences to what we often read about in you know the the Sydneys and the Melbournes and so i think that the most important thing really which extends beyond setting is just being able to see yourself reflected back in fiction you know i just think it's so important to have more diverse settings, diverse voices, diverse experiences being represented in fiction so that we can like welcome the huge pool of readers and their different experiences by shining them back to them. We're at the part of the podcast where I hit you with a bunch of rapid fire questions to finish off. No pressure okay. at all. All right. I'm ready. You've mentioned that you are a big reader, which I, which I always love. What is your favourite book that you've read in the last 12 months? <gasps> How dare you? Okay. Um, <laughs> do I have to choose one? Give me two. Can I throw a few at you? Yeah, okay, two. A, actually, yeah, I yeah. can do two. I absolutely adored Salt and Skin by Eliza Henry Jones, which came out in about August 2022, I think. It's set in Scotland and Scottish islands. I have Scottish heritage. It spoke to me in that way. I just was completely absorbed. I absolutely loved it. Um, and then the second book, oh, I there's two I want to say. 
there's two I want to say, but I will just go with the most recent that I loved was The Wakes by Diane Yarwood, who I know you've talked to on this podcast. Adored that book. I wouldn't usually have picked it up if I had just read the blurb on the back. I probably would have thought, oh, that sounds like a good book for someone else. Like I would have thought I'll recommend that to someone, but I won't pick it up myself. But I heard so much about it that I was convinced finally to pick it up and I'm so glad I did I just loved every moment of it it's such a glorious glorious book that made me feel like grateful to be alive (laughs) it's one of those ones I actually want to read I'm like I've been reading a lot of books in prep for this and Mm. I really want to read I want to reread that like this a lot of these I'm going to reread all of these books but that one I'm immediately (laughs) going like yeah I want to come back to you just because of just the it's the whole book is a life is a death life focuser it it, like it highlights death as a real life focuser but also just shows that all of the crap that gets in the way of life Mm -hmm. is the meaning of it we what we do as Mm -hmm. creatures is we make meaning in a ridiculous world which I think is just totally I've Um, already passed it on to my mum who's passed it to my sister and I just hope it keeps doing the rounds with people I love because it's I adored it stunning book shout out Diane if you're listening hey shout out to you hey (laughs) hey um (laughs) Do you have a favourite word? I do, and it's really random. My favourite word is Dostoyevsky. (laughs) Explain. I just love saying it. I just (laughs) love the way that it sounds. I love the way that it, like, comes out of my mouth. It's really fun, Dostoyevsky. It's just a fun word to say. It's so stupid. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) I'm not going to lie. I've been feeling that as well. Sometimes it's words that you love to say. Mine for the last, like, year has been succulent, the different phases of it, different uh, feelings you get from it, and also Mm -hmm. some of the the different interpretations to what could be described as succulent. It could be inappropriate. It could be appropriate. It could be a plant. You do not know. Yeah. Mm. It's oh, that's it's a good one too. I feel like yours has more meaning than mine. <laughs> but yours is much more fun to say. Let's call it that. <laughs> it's pretty fun to say. <laughs> I recommend. <laughs> Where would be your favourite place to read? In bed, on the couch, or out the back, in the shade, on a sunny afternoon? The latter, in a hammock. Mm. Yes, mm-hmm. please. That's yeah, we have one of those freestanding hammocks. We It was like a lockdown purchase. Because, you know, you're trying to, like, find joy in small places when you can't do much else. And it became my absolute favourite thing to do is, like, day or night, I wrapped myself in a sleeping bag and hopped into the hammock, you know, on a winter's day when the sun wasn't strong enough to keep me warm. But then also on a summer's day in the shade, in the hammock with a book. Chef's kiss. Do you have a beverage of choice to read with? To read with? Oh, my god! So, like, you're, you're, you're reading and you're, like... This is a good time. I'm going to reach over for the beverage to to enjoy. What is it? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so I have a romantic answer and a real answer. The romantic mm-hmm. answer is like my fav- one of my favourite drinks is a whiskey on the rocks with a squeeze mm-hmm. of lime. But yeah. when I, as I'm saying this out loud, I realise I don't think I've ever read a book with a whiskey next to me. I've written with a whiskey next to me but I haven't read a book with one next to me. So the real answer would be like a, a really good cup of tea. Like I love a chai. Shout out to a Newcastle business, the Tea Collective. They make an amazing gingerbread chai. So I can make that at home and that's a that's a good cosy drink for a reading session. 
I think the Tea Collective is is partnered with a with a with a traveling bookshop that it goes to that goes to all of the markets. Betty loves books. I think it is. I think that it might be the same one, but I'm, I'm my head. It's. Going not, I know what you're talking about. It's not the same one. It's not. They make their own tea at Betty Loves Books. They have uh, their own Betty Loves Tea. Yes, that's yeah. right. But the yeah, the Tea Collective is. You'd find it in lots of different cafes around Newcastle. Um, the founder Becky's a friend of mine, um, and she. I was one of the first friends she made when she moved to Newcastle and, and opened the business. And yeah, she's just gone gangbusters. I'm so proud of her. But the tea is just exquisite. I'm going, hunting. I'm going to go hunting this afternoon. We're going to do that. Yeah, you should. Do you have a favorite trope? What's your go-to trope? <laughs> I think I have a romantic answer and a real answer. Once again, <laughs> my romantic answer would definitely be like the coming of age. Is it's obvious to me, but it's also something that I, in my PhD, explored as not being real you know I I reappropriated the coming of age in my thesis but what I really love and can't seem to get away from when I'm writing is a bloody love triangle mm. <laughs> it's just good for a reason it's good it's for just a so reason. much tension to be had you mm. know I didn't think I would ever be admitting that out loud as like such a basic trope but you know I think it's a trope for a reason people resonate with a love triangle we've all been in some semblance of a love triangle in our lives I'm sure so so much fodder <laughs> mm, we're all about the fodder <laughs> what is one thing now that you have written and cre- created and published a book that you wish you knew when you were in the path of space of being a lecturer and wish you could have conveyed to students wanting to go down this path what is one thing that's a really tough one I had a funny moment when I, the reason why I asked this question is I had a really funny moment when I was at university and I was, I'd written this piece and one tutor absolutely loved it and gave it an HD and then he had to leave our class. And then mm-hmm. I, I picked, I, the, the lecturer became our tutor and she moved it down all the way to basically <laughs> a pass. And then I had a realisation of it's completely subjective. There isn't like the, the, the enjoyment of, the enjoyment mm. of liter- of literary experiences is mm. sometimes you will have someone who will just not connect with your story. And then sometimes you will have someone who will think it is everything. And what matters mm. is that you do it. It was the key learning that I found, but I don't know. You've, you've that's had more experience with it than I have. Yeah. It, that's, that's a really good one actually. But I, I just keep thinking of advice that I'm giving them constantly that I didn't know when I was them, like when mm. I was an undergrad, as opposed to that I didn't know until I was published, you know, like one of the things that lots of people often ask me at the end of the semester is like, what do I do when I finish? Can I just go and be a writer sort of thing? And and that's a, a really good conversation I like to have with them about <laughs> the arts in Australia, not to dissuade them at all, but just to give a bit of a, a reality check because I think that's something that I didn't have, like especially when I was going through my PhD, I think there's this romantic vision that is sometimes presented to you that if you're doing a PhD and then you become a doctor of words, <laughs> whatever you're <laughs> doing a PhD in, um, that you'll sort of like breeze into an academic job that's like really cushy and you'll get a publishing deal and everything will be roses. And, you know, it's it's just not the case. Like in, in Australia and in the arts and in creative writing especially, there just aren't that many academic jobs going around. And a lot of people do not care if you have a PhD or not out in the real world, you know. So it's not a guaranteed walk into um, a great job. 
the the thing that I say to them is like, if you want to write, then just write, like just just write as much as you can, write for the, the local newspaper, write for the uni newspaper, just start a blog. Like as long as you can just start getting your name out there and when someone, an opportunity does come your way and you can send them things that you've already written, that's the best thing. Like don't wait to get a job to write because you won't get a job unless you're writing. And that's a weird thing. Like that's why it's different to something like teaching or nursing. You know, they're vocational, but studying creative writing is not vocational. (laughs) No one's going to hire you in a job as a writer just because you did creative writing at uni. Like you have to prove yourself in a way that, you know, many other industries you don't have to do that. So that's that's a reality check conversation I like to have with my students. I think the subjective one that you said is really good as well is like don't be crushed by you know, a couple of one bad review or one rejection, you need to really build that tough skin to make it in the game. And also at the same time, be careful of who you're giving your writing to for advice. Like your mum is always going to tell you that it's good. And then when you get it marked at uni and you get a pass or a credit or something and you're confused because your mum said it was great, it's like, is your mum the right person to be giving you actual feedback on your work? <laughs> you know, like go for beta readers who who read a lot, who have some experience, like, you know, be careful of that kind of thing as well. I think like there can be false hope that's put out there because of giving your work to the wrong people. Mm. That's great. Mm. Love that. Often I think you have to learn to really cop it on the chin in, in industries like this and be prepared for that. Oh, yeah. And I think Margaret Atwood has a really, really great quote where she says, you become a writer by writing. Uh, there is yeah. no other way, um, which is, is literally the, is none. The truth of it. There is you become a writer by writing. That's the, the qualified yeah. reality of it. I love it. Um, sure. What is your favourite debut book that you've ever read? Ever? So we're talking oh like God. it could be a modern <laughs> one, it could be a contemporary classic, it could mm. be my personal favourite, like To Kill a Mockingbird, which Harper Lee just uh, just comes along, drops To Kill a Mockingbird and then leaves. Doesn't return yes. back for 40 years. What is your yes. favourite debut that you've ever read? I do love a one-hit wonder like that. There's something really cool about it. But I don't think I've ever put enough thought into this question or or my my book list like my reading list to sort of analyze which of these are debuts um (laughs) but no but actually one of my favorite books of all time is hot little hands by abigail ullman and it's a book of short stories that came out i don't know maybe maybe close to a decade ago now Mm -hmm. um and she hasn't published any books since she writes for you know, magazines and the monthly and things like that. She hasn't published any actual books. So that's a that's one of my top five favourite books of all time. So that's definitely, you know, up there as a solid debut in my books. Um, Love it. But I will mention a debut that I read last year, which was incredible, and it almost made it to my, you know, before when you were asking me about my favourite book that I've read in the last 12 months, Denizen by James Mackenzie Watson. Um, stunning, like, psychological thriller um, I guess you'd almost call it very literary strain out but back mental illness exploration just like as a first book amazing so so good one of my favorites of the year love it last mm. question you hop into a lift and your absolute hero 
is in there. Who is it? <laughs> oh, living or dead, who I would, who I would love to meet. Mm. I don't know if I would call them a hero, but I have been in love with the late Heath Ledger since I was ten years old. <laughs> and he he would be so interesting to just talk to. He was always oh such an gosh. interesting person to talk. Like he was really what gave, ins- gave insight- insightful answers and put in so much work into every role that he did. Mm-hmm. There would be a wonderful conversation to have over a cup of tea. Yeah, if I could get over the fact that I am still, you know, convinced that we would have been married one day if he hadn't <laughs> passed early. If I could get over my like kind of flustered, blushing awkwardness um, at being in the lift with him, I think we would get along great. <laughs> I love it. That's a good answer. I like that. I could I could honestly talk to you all day, but I'm aware that you are an incredibly busy person with people to see <laughs> and places to go. So I'll finish off by saying to all of our listeners, Mistakes and Other Lovers is published by Parent Millen um, and you can get it. Uh, pre-order it, order it, whatever you may be. Uh, if you like the show, drop words and nerds a review. Let us know what you think and who you'd like to hear from next. Thank you so much, Amy. It has been so great having you. Thanks for having me.